The views and opinions expressed on Red Planet are those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect those of Red Planet nor any affiliated or related entities. This podcast is provided for educational purposes only. Listener discretion is advised. everyone, welcome to Red Planet, Sophie here. This week we don't actually have a new episode for you, but rather we're republishing an interview that Mule and I did with Jay and Issa from the Laboratory of Insurrectionary Imagination. Now, this is one of my absolute favourite episodes we've ever done, and it's constantly referred back to, often by me, in later episodes of the show, and I hope you see why, but that's not the main reason that we want to republish it this week, and we'll get to the main reason in a second. But first, I want to let you know, from next week we're going to be having a new small segment in the show about what the most based thing our audience got up to this week was. So, if you have a based thing you want to tell us about, you can email based at redplanetshow.com with your name and pronouns and a little description and maybe verification of what you've been up to, and then we'll talk about it on the show, and that would be based. So, uh, there you go. Now, the second thing I need to talk about is why we are republishing this interview today. If you've been paying attention to the news recently, you're probably aware that France is currently on fire because authoritarian loser and pathetic small-souled tiny man Emmanuel Macron has decided that he doesn't need the people's mandate in order to govern. You may also remember from the Red Planet news a few weeks ago that environmental activists and peasant farmers in France were very angry at the construction of a mega-basin. These mega-basins are used on behalf of the state and for industrial agriculture at the expense of local people, the local ecology, and peasant farmers, which is why people are so angry about them. So this is where our two French stories come together, because at the same time that these protests are going on and Macron's government is trying to expand authoritarian police power in response to them, they are also trying to use those authoritarian powers against climate activists. We've received a very angry and very scared email from Jay, and I'd like to read some of it to you now and paraphrase some other parts with brevity. Okay, so Jay says, Exactly a week ago, 30,000 of us peasant farmers and activists from France and internationally responded to a call by the movement Les Souvlements de la Terre, the Uprising of the Earth, which links diverse local ecological struggles across France. The movement's actions over the last two years have targeted concrete factories, Bayer chemical production, high-speed rail, new roads, sand quarries, and more. Actions have involved a creative mixture of civil disobedience and what has been termed disarming actions, which involves dismantling the weapons that destroy the planet. This time we took action against a mega-reservoir under construction in Saint-Saline. These mega-basins are ecologically destructive, false solution to climate breakdown, promoted by industrial agriculture, and many in other regions have already been declared illegal through court actions and construction stopped. So the climate activists gathered to protest the mega-basin being constructed in Saint-Saline, and here Jay writes, The French state decided to violently attack the crowd with 3,200 police launching 5,000 explosive grenades, tear gas, and rubber bullets in just two hours. 200 people were injured, 40 seriously, some have lost eyes or have been disfigured, and as I write, two people remain in comas, hanging on to life. The police even blocked the ambulances coming to help all because we were trying to get into a giant hole to defend water and resisting those who privatise it. Jay goes on to talk a little bit about the Macron government, and in particular the Interior Minister, uh, saying, He also said there will be no more ZADs, Zona Defense, as I said before, set up in our country, neither in Saint-Saline nor elsewhere, and that he is setting up a special anti-ZAD unit. 
The Sullivan de la Terre emerged from the experience of Zad of Notre Dame de Land with that one against an airport project and is where we live. The state fears that others might set up camps in forests, wetlands and prairies to defend them against destruction and show the world that there are other ways of producing and being together than patriarchal colonial capitalism. The most dangerous moment in movements are when they begin to win. The email ends with a call for as many people as possible to sign on to a statement declaring themselves part of the Soulevement de la Terre, which will make things more legally difficult for the French state in trying to make legislation against the movement. The link will be in the description and I really encourage everyone to click through and sign it. It only takes a couple of minutes and I've done it myself. So here's what the call says. Rise up. The movement Les Soulevements cannot be dissolved because it is made up of all the movements, peasants, environmentalists, those for the safeguard of water and our lands. You cannot dissolve a rumbling movement, you cannot dissolve a revolt that is preparing, because whether we are land workers, elected officials, activists, we are the people of the water and we are multiple and elusive. To prove it, to make this umpteenth repression really impossible, let's all rise up together. That's great stuff. It, it reminds me of the uh, old socialist saying that you can cut all the flowers, but you cannot stop the spring. So um, please click through and, and sign that call. And I hope you all enjoy this republished interview with Jay and Isa. And Red Planet will be back next time, regular place, uh, with the Common Humanity Collective. We are now going to bring in uh, our wonderful guests. Okay, uh, I will read a little intro for them then. Yeah. So, boys and girls, listen. There are lots of ways to fight for a better world. Some people protest, some people raise awareness through social media by dressing up as clowns for your entertainment. Some people organize, some people directly sabotage the systems that are hurting us. Some people occupy land that capitalists want to devastate and destroy. And with so many beautiful and complex ways to resist, our guests today are here to tell us about the importance of imagination in collective struggles. Issa and Jay from the Laboratory of Insurrectionary Imagination have been involved in a huge range of organizing and direct action and are the authors of We Are Nature Defending Itself, a book about their defense of the French marshes and farmlands that the government wanted to turn into another airport terminal. So, welcome to Issa and Jay. Hello! Ah, you're coming through my headphones. There we go. Hi! It is a pleasure to have you on. Why don't you start by introducing yourself? And telling us a little bit about is it is this how I say it? You literally just say it, La Buffy. <laughs> <laughs> you can sounds yeah. like the naughty pie, yeah. but uh, <laughs> which is nice. But it's no, it's a laboratory of insurrectionary imagination, short for La Buffy. There you go. So there you go. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the laboratory of insurrectionary. I've forgotten it already. Sorry, imagination. Imagination. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, imagination. Um. It's a, so the the lab is a collective that we co-founded in 2004, back in the day, and that has been bringing uh, artists and activists together to co-design and deploy um, creative forms of resistance and disobedience, and has been doing that in many different contexts and in many different forms uh, in and it takes it takes a pedagogical dimension. So we do a lot of workshops and trainings, and but we also uh, do what we call experiments because we prefer talking about experiments rather than projects. And the whole idea is not to make. We're not interested in art about political subjects. Uh, so we're not interested in you know a theatre piece about climate justice or 
an installation about uh, you know, migrants' uh, struggles. For us, the whole idea is that art is a is a direct action that actually direct act, forms of direct action and disobedience can be poetic, can be beautiful, can be irresistible. In the end, we think that the role of the artist is to to make revolution irresistible. Yeah, you uh, you put in your book. Um... Uh, quite striking bit in part one that I thought was really good where you were talking about like different artists who are kind of saying that they like care and are making their art to do with political causes but like they're just they're just making more like art that gets sold to a private collector for millions of dollars or whatever and and it's not actually like where's the actual impact right like but even in theater and things like that I mean we we feel that you know a lot of People, you know, in a sense, it, it becomes an offset. It's like, uh, you know, people go to the theatre, they go and see a, a piece of radical theatre that's about uh, some political subject, and then they leave the theatre, they've experienced the the kind of justice on, on stage, and then they go home and they go back to their jobs in the banks or the chemical industry or the fossil fuel industry, and they just feel a bit better about themselves. And and for us, it's we, we think the reason we put artists and activists together is because artists have you know, certain creativity capacity to think outside the box can be thinking poetically but tend to you know and it's their training be very egocentric and not very good at working in collectives and not really linked their their behavior their everyday life isn't very connected to their politics and activists uh tend to uh, have uh more courage more coherence between their everyday life and their and their ideas but tend to have a kind of lack of imagination it's always let's do a, a, a demonstration let's do a lock-on uh let's do a riot and for us to bring these two forces together the idea is to bring the creativity of the artist and the courage of the activists and that from there we can create new forms of disobedience yeah i, I i'll say that i think that's completely true I, I i say kind of often on here that like my personal mission has been in like trying to unite the online and offline left as like a place that has a lot of eyes on it and a lot of attention and people who are actually doing valuable stuff. Um, and in trying to do that, we've been doing things like this show where we'd like talk to people who are doing stuff that's pretty based. And it does get into a cycle where we're like, this is a guest from a union and we'll ask them questions and they'll be like, yeah, so we recruit people to the union. We tell them that it's in their best interests and then we all have a strike and then that makes a difference. And it's like, cool, great, good episode. I've done I kind of done this episode 12 times now but it's always good like it's always good to keep on promoting these orgs and like we'll always keep on giving a platform to them but like on a personal level it's like <sighs> then again like you know this is because in some cases you could say this is because like these are tried and tested tactics that work but like that does that doesn't disregard your perspective that like trying new things could always work more could always work better right I think that it's it's also it's also very much about combining them. It's like there mm-hmm. is, of course, that there are tried and you know tried and tested uh, tactics that work, and it's not to say these should be put to the rubbish bin. Um, I think that it's still about trying to um, reinvent the codes to surprise the authorities, surprise ourselves. Uh, is to find forms that have prefergative politics at their core, that is to be able to actually embody the worlds that you would like to 
um, envisage in the in the resistance that you deploy, um, trying to always intertwine the yes and the no in the political gestures that you that you put, and therefore, for us, it's not about condemning uh, some forums in order to replace them with others. It's much more about always enriching the toolbox also to try to make collaborations that are new it's like trying to find new synergies and i think this is one of the things that the lab has been trying to do is to try and propose frameworks for actions that make worlds that were kind of not really supposed to work together work together um because that's that's also how you enrich and enlarge the perspectives and the mobilizations around some subject and key to that i mean the, one of the first i think the first we we the first event the the laboratory of insurrection imagination did we promoted it with a sticker that said capitalism is boring uh and um and in a sense for us it it's really important that radical politics is quite the opposite of capitalism and therefore not boring uh and for us the, the element of fun and pleasure is absolutely central to what we do i mean if 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 we can't have a ball making the revolutions then what is the point you know if it's just going to be marches from a to b with the same placards that just change the no you know keep the no and then just replace you know whatever war uh cuts or whatever and you keep doing that for 50 years so for us that it's absolutely i mean bertolt brecht used to talk about you know that his theater was basically to train people in the pleasure of transforming reality and so we've we've done i mean a, an example of an action we're, we're always we're always linked to social movements so we're not the kind of artists who kind of you know we're there as organizers and as artists so we're not the kind of artists who kind of come into a social movement for like one day show that little thing and then come out for us we're always engaged totally in, involved in the movements and an example of a kind of fun kind of thing would be like we we were often involved in the climate camp movement in the in the early 2000s um and there was a climate camp against a, a coal-fired power station for example and for that action what we organized was so the idea was to take to stop the power station using air sea uh and land and we took the sea bit and the idea there was we basically did a kind of kind of like a treasure map we made the treasure map we got groups in affinity groups together we gave each group an, a treasure map on the treasure map showed where there were boats that we'd buried in the forest so we'd buried these 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 um uh inflatable big inflatable dinghies for like seven people and there were there were affinity groups of about seven to eight people the boats were buried in this in the forest with a bottle of rum uh the groups got their treasure map they then went into the forest found their their boat slay, stayed the night in the in the forest and then on the signal on the next morning uh went out onto the river and we got 150 people onto the river and one of the boats stopped the power station and you know it's it's that adding the adventure and we think revolutions can be so adventurous and adventure is addictive so it's also about you know bringing that that fun that pleasure that adventure it's super important for us that's fantastic. I love that. Just the whole premise of what you do is so awesome to me personally, because this is something that I always say in that, like, 
I would love a world where we are sort of post-capitalism, where I don't have to talk about all the shit that's going on in the world. I don't have to do activism. I just get to like do art and chill out and like make music and stuff. And that's kind of what everybody should be thinking in it. Like, like, you know, we should be thinking about where we want to be in a post-capitalist world. So if we are anti-capitalist, why are we not incorporating our protest in what we think is a post-capitalist world? And that's, that's really inspiring. I love that. I think that's great. Yeah. I really like the capitalism is boring slogan, especially like, I think that so many people will just relate to that as soon as they see it. But then they're also like, uh, if they're seeing a protest that is fun or a direct action that is fun, they'll see like, like you said, it's adventure. And then they'll be like, there's nowhere under capitalism. I, I feel like I can just have an adventure, but fighting capitalism can be an adventure. And then that's a very, very appealing idea. I really like that. Um, I think that it's also about moving beyond activism as this kind of sacrificial, um, hard, uh in many many ways very macho um endeavor but to also make it something that is um enriching and and there is a lot of work still to do to make activism a, a practice that is also regenerative and that is not a kind of you know burnout machine but for us um if we manage to have uh fun and pleasure in in the activism that we do, then hopefully the risk of of burnout and this kind of quite horrible sacrificial um, atmosphere can be mediated and and bridged towards more more fruitful ways of organizing. I love that. That's fantastic. It would also bring. I mean, when uh, you say about you know living the the post-capitalist world now I mean that's what what Isa talks about this uh, the prefigurative element and that's so important for us I mean I I kind of learned my direct action initially from being in the anti-roads movement in the 90s and then reclaim the streets in the in the, uh, in the nine, late 90s and reclaim the streets was this very clear idea of prefigurative politics you know we're against cars in the city we think cars we thought cars were a privatization of the public space of the commons of the city the, the city street and all the research showed the more cars you have, the less neighbors talk to each other. So the cars are not only a toxic kind of polluting thing, but a kind of privatizing machine. And so instead of going around doing banners of stop the cars, no more cars, we would say, well, look, let's experience a street without machines, just with bodies having fun and dancing. And so we'd have these big street parties where we'd have, you know, 8,000 people dancing to rave music, make having illegal raves on the street. And so, you know, this is the idea of prefigurative politics. It's not just about saying, no it's about saying no and through the no showing the yes showing uh, actually this is what it's like and we're speaking to you right now from uh, our collective house uh, uh, which is one of 40 collective um, uh, spaces on a 1650 uh, acre uh, uh, no 4000 4000 acre uh, territory uh, that fought against an airport by living an alternative life, by living post-capitalist lives. Oh. And, you know, we're speaking from right now, should have been uh, probably the duty-free shop of the airport if it hadn't been for, for this struggle, which said no to the airport, but look, this is, this is the, we're going to set up collective farms. And So for uh, people who've read your book, you are there now, you are in, in, the, in the ZAD that you wrote about in the book. Absolutely, that's where we live. That's where we live with 200 other people. 
That's fantastic. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. So I'm curious about um, if you know uh, what Naomi Klein and others describe as blockadia, the theory of like expanding. I, it, it, it's very much in line with the politics you are describing. So I just, for the, the audience who might not know, um, mm. it's this kind of theory of the um, the blockades, the sabotage, the, the, the camps and occupations uh, of living in the society that you already want to live in, this kind of prefigurative activism like you're describing, like expanding out and merging into each other and that being where our like new society comes from that's that that being the nature of our revolution that we that we like live as we intend to live and then and then when areas of people doing that merge into one another then we all get to live how we intend to live um Mm. you've been nodding along so i assume that you kind of already were familiar with this as as the the like as named yeah and it's not just it's not just um it's not just a political, a successful political strategy. I think it's also really important for mental health, actually. I think a lot of people, you know, they, and we had this, and this is why we left London uh, uh, and left our jobs and, 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 and came to live here eventually. But uh, that, you know, when you, you know, you can go and protest, you go and do your, do your direct actions, and it's very much an events thing. And then you come back home and you're back in your jobs and you're back in the process of, of you know of re re reconstructing capitalism or, or or nourishing capitalism and actually it feels shit in your head because you're like you're an anti-capitalist at the weekends and then all week you're a capitalist because you're in you're nourishing the capitalist machine so it's also a way i think blockade you in this this idea of prefigurative space space place is also a way of trying to not just be coherent with your politics and your way of life but also just good for your mental health because you experience the thing you dream of and it's not it's not to say that you know we found this kind of purity in the space where we're totally outside capitalism i think that it's is virtually impossible but at least by by building these spaces and participating in it and living uh living on on the land like here in our case is that we live on the land that literally was um, protected and saved from an, an international um, airport project and building the commons by doing it and still doing that is that you have so much more a sense of of strength and commonality which I think is very often what living in cities and metropolis uh, breaks is that is the, the sense of actually building things collectively even when you are involved in very strong social movements that the the everyday is is a kind of machine of fragmentation and itemization and i think that this is like finding spaces where that can be uh where the atomization can be broken and the collective can be rebuilt is really something that makes a, a big difference for all the reasons that Jay just described. So I, uh, you, you're saying about um, a sense of collectiveness, but uh, that's not just with the other people who are kind of in the occupied uh, zone that you're, that that's with everyone around. Because something that really struck me in the book was when you said about uh, local people donating like uh, dry clothes and, and food and stuff to the ZAT. Um, uh, maybe we should we should talk some more about the the, the book probably um, and and everything that you've done on the ZAD. But um, that 
that in particular was really interesting to me because my girlfriend uh, studied a lot of like military um, theory and, and history. And so she, she described push logistics and pull logistics to me recently. And I've been seeing a lot of stuff through that lens now, like push logistics is like invaders need to have a supply line to get stuff to their guys to do the invasion. Pull logistics is that like, you're already in a place, you already know all the people in the place. And so you can be like, Hey, do you have a bunch of, first aid kits do you have some clothes do you have some food do you have some water and then like people around can organize to like bring the stuff in almost like a root system right and you very much lay down roots and so you're able to rely on those pull logistics um when you were resisting the police for all that time like you you had that connection to the local community right yeah because it seems to us that one of the one of the things that you need to have for this kind of um, strategy to work and for in in my view for any kind of direct action to work in a way that is really long-lasting is a culture of resistance which is that you basically value and nourish um, all the ways that people can take part in the resistance and and in the resistance we mean the no and the yes it's like and and for us that's really about saying well yes we need the front line whatever whatever the front line looks like we need that but the front lines never ever can be strong if they don't have a whole network of supporters that if you don't have people who cook the food who uh, care for the um, elderly and the kids if you don't have the medics if you don't have the legal teams if you don't have the people that actually bring everything that you need and you know not not in small measures the the support the the moral support and and that also means the culture and the poetry and the songs it's like if you don't have that really strong culture of resistance then very quickly your movement becomes brittle and isolated and so it's not it, it is very much about the logistics but it's also very much about a whole culture and it seems that you know when you look at history all the movements that showed genuine strength and and genuine um uh, lasting power were all movements that had that kind of cultural resistance that had people that would you know provide the safe houses that would provide the food that you know and that is you know you can look at history um even hundreds of years back and i think that this is something that we really need to always try to build it's like and it's and it's very different in my view from you know the the kind of old old school stroke convergence of struggles it's like it's not the same thing it's it's really like sharing the culture and offering spaces for people to be able to think well what is it that i can bring like where are my skills where are my where are my capacities it's like and even if it's small it's like there is space for me to actually bring it it's like so you know when we went through um evictions um here which were periods that were really, really hard and really violent with like a lot of police presence and a lot of police violence is that some local people find a way to um, get involved by just bringing food or just by bringing, you know, like coming to get the clothes, wash them, bring it back. And that is a lifeline. And it's like, and it might feel 
like a small way of getting involved. And yet it makes all the difference in, in the world. And I think that that's, it means also that you can, um, you can open up the very notion of what it is to be an activist. It's like it doesn't have to just be this kind of, I sacrifice my entire life to the cause. You gain your whole life, actually. You can, it can be like, you get to have your life. I think that it's like when you have a movement where you have loads and loads and loads of different people that bring in loads and loads and loads of different skills and, and capacities, then you have a movement that is really alive. And a movement that is really alive is a movement that can't be broken so easily. I really want to talk a bunch about the book. I really love the book. <laughs> I, uh, it, it's genuinely like one of my new faves. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but I do want to talk about something uh, from earlier in your imaginative kind of resistance. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, the clandestine insurgent rebel clown army, which uh, we, we, we were very um, uh, keen when we heard about it at Red Planet. We thought it was really, really cool. So can you tell us a little bit about Circa, the, the clandestine insurgent rebel clown army? It's just because we had red noses, isn't it? That's just really... <laughs> <laughs> it looked like little many red planets, you know? Um, so yeah, it came out of, I mean, like, many things it emerged out of a crisis uh it emerged out of in a way the end of the alter globalization movement uh so you have this huge anti-capitalist movement totally transnational totally you know built on kind of radical ideas of uh that are anti-state uh horizontality uh a lot of people from the global south mixing with the people from the global north and then um massive you know have incredible situations where summits are cancelled, you know, the G7, G8 summits that can't finish or the IMF summit can't finish or the WTO summit is, is shut down. And then you have 9-11 and then you have massive repression starts around 2001, uh, especially in Genoa. And then you have 9-11 happening just after Genoa, like three months later. And suddenly the whole, it's not about capitalism anymore. It's like, uh, you know, a dialectic of, of civilizations and the whole story becomes shifted and it's a bore and, you know, Wars are great for getting rid of revolutionary uh, uh, moments, you know, nothing like a good war to uh, dampen revolutions. Uh, and so we were all feeling pretty, you know, really broken by the end of that movement, I think. Um, and uh, I was increasingly seeing how a lot of activists were becoming burnt out and building activist armor around themselves and basically was stopping feeling. I think that, you know, activism comes because you feel uh, an injustice, you feel something deeply, then you build and then you act according to your feelings. But what I saw is a lot of activists starting like that and then slowly building up this armor around themselves and therefore not being, being good in working groups and so on. So develop this idea uh, called the clandestine insurgent rebel clown army, which was the idea of merging clowning because clowning opens people like as a psychological, it's a psychological practice, deep psychological practice where people are open, they open their hearts, they open their entire bodies. Uh, and, you know, our, clowns are kind of always naked in a sense, they have no armor. Um, and uh, the idea was merging that psychological work with the fact that there'd been a very much rising in confrontation and the police know very well how to deal with confrontation. Um, 
you know, I'm not against, I, I, I don't speak from a position of nonviolence. I don't, I'm not, a, you know, but I think violence is a tool like any other and some tools are good for one moment and some tools are not for good for other moment. And it's clear with when faced with the state, the state knows how to deal with violence very well. Uh, so the idea was how do you use co confusion in, in instead of confrontation? The state hates to be confused. So basically we set up these workshops, we worked with professional clowns and we built a clown army and we went and did actions like going to try and we it was during the Iraq war so we would go to a recruitment center as a clown army so in clown dress and and a, a clown army dress so army uh camouflage but with big pink uh kind of fluff on the camouflage and then we'd go into um the army recruitment agency to try and join the army saying oh well you know we've liberated you we hear you're liberating people in iraq we're clowns we know how to liberate people but we'd fall over or we, we wouldn't be able to fill in the forms properly and, and then they'd have to <laughs> shut it down for the day and then we set up our own really naff clown army recruitment stall outside and so we started this and then it became a kind of global meme and there were clown armies like in colombia and netherlands and france and germany and spain and new zealand i mean basically all over the world wow um that's so good we then became the first deserters because we realized it was an aesthetic crime uh because um <laughs> In many ways, bad clowns is the worst thing you can put into the world. Uh, and <laughs> what what we had done is create this thing. We, we'd forgotten. I mean, in our work, we, you know, we have one foot in the activist world and one foot in the art kind of world or the art time, art space, yes. active space. And in art space, you can spend three years rehearsing finalizing a performance the last three minutes and where you pull a tulip out of your ass and everyone's happy in the activist world you're in emergency emergency all the time you know there are people dying in the in in the mediterranean the the sea levels are rising temperatures rising the droughts are coming you know you've got to act now 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 yeah. and so the trouble was that you, to be a good clown you need to take time and activists didn't have the time and so they basically thought, oh, I'll put a red nose on and I'll make do a stupid voice and then I'll be a clown. And it was a disaster. <laughs> right. Which is, yeah, disrespecting the long legacy and training of, of, of clowning that exists. Um, I think, uh, sorry, that, that sounded flippant. I, I, I mean, that's good. No, 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 no. I have a very close friend who is a, a formerly trained clown who taught me a lot. <laughs> I mean it. She's really smart. She's a really smart person. She explained to me why clowns are scary and also why they're sexy. And it's the same reason that if a clown is messing with you, no one will help because they, the, the clown could mess with them too. Um, I wanted to say, um, I thought this was so cool uh, because like, I think that that's very much something that kind of goes into the thinking in Red Planet is that like a lot of people know that if you are successfully being an influencer, like it's a, it's a bit of a dream job for many people. There are a lot of like nightmarish elements to it as well. Like there's obviously no sick pay. I mean, I'm hacking and coughing through this entire interview. Um, and like, if you're not making stuff all the time, then you, then, then you die. Um, you're, you're, you know, the, you're at the whims of the algorithm, all this kind of stuff. But at the same time, like it is fun and you do get to like play video games on a stream and, and people just, just give you money. And so like, I think that a part of the red planet ethos is definitely that we're like, if you can do this successfully, you can be encouraging people to change the world while doing one of the kind of coolest jobs there is to do, like, you know, just hanging out with people on a stream. Um, so that's kind of what I loved about, you know, the approach of, and hopefully 
we're practiced enough to be fairly good clowns. I hope we'll see. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I loved. Uh, yeah, so I love the clandestine insurgent rebel clown army. Let's talk about the book though, because I think the book is 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 incredible, and it also charts an incredible thing that you both were involved in, um, and I mean, I mean, still are. You're on the land right now, um, so can you give us a quick summary i mean it's not that long a book but like uh, 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 even quicker than this um of the kind of history of the zad um and like what happened what you did and and then we'll be kind of caught up to get into it a bit in a bit more depth the very quick summary of the history of the zad is is actually it takes roots in like in a very long struggle um basically um, international airport uh, was planned since the 60s. I just realized also, if people don't know when I'm saying ZAD, I'm referring to the zone ad defendre. Am I saying that right? I hope so. Um, the the zone to be defended, the occupied territory that you're that you're that you're keeping. Yeah, which is in the in the west of France, in in Brittany, um, and there's basically. Uh, 4,000 acres of wetland and farmland with night springs that were due to be concreted over uh, to build an international airport. Um, project that was resisted since its uh, inception in the late 60s, uh, primarily, in initially mostly by farmers. Um, and then uh, the project went into dormancy uh, for a few decades, mostly because of the oil shock. And then uh, the resistance reactivated and went beyond the farmers when the project got out of the boxes in, in the year 2000. Um, and in 2008, uh, some people who were living on the zone, so what we call in the jargon of the struggles, the historical um, resistors, uh, wrote an open letter because they realized that basically the state was uh, buying uh, farms and land to be able to make way for the airport. And they realized that actually it was gutting out the territory and wrote this beautiful um, open letter saying to defend the territory, you need to inhabit it. And therefore inviting people to come and squat land and farms to be able to resist it by being there, by occupying it. And that's and some people responded to that invitation following a climate camp that was um, organized and then in and started making um, making links with local farmers and uh, took inspiration from struggles in from an anti road struggle in the in the UK uh, by building tree houses, etc. Started um cultivating uh, the land themselves as well um and that was not seen in a very positive eye by the state bizarrely so there was a big um military operation called operation caesar which in the land of asterix was a strategic mistake um because the the resistance that they faced was so diverse and so determined that it took everyone by surprise um, by surprise, and they managed to destroy uh, 12 um, farmhouses and and cabins. But the, the resistance uh, that ensued was just so amazing that they basically withdrew after um, after a few months of that military operation. They the cops withdrew 
and didn't set foot on the zone for six years. Um, and during those six years, there was the kind of flurry of activities and building and um, and and it was really it became a laboratory of the commons for six years, uh, which was not without loads of tensions and loads of usage and political uh, conflicts because there was an amazing diversity of people and groups coming here and uh, so there were still the historic uh, farmers and inhabitants and there were like anarchist and anarcho-primitivists that were you know next to dairy farmers and people who didn't believe in using any kind of motorized vehicles or tools next to farmers that were using massive tractors and I mean it was it was an absolutely incredible um, cauldron of political um, resistance and activities and there was really a, a lot of incredible strategic vision in in that territory that led in 2018 uh, to the cancellation of the airport project that the government actually acknowledged to be the outcome of the deadlock that the project was in because the resistance was just far too strong i mean in in the year 2016 to give you a sense uh, which was the year where everyone had become legally evictable um everyone there was about 300 people and 70 different squatted zones on the zad at that moment and uh, and basically the movement had grown so strong that uh, we managed to organize um, uh, the occupation of a massive uh, bridge that crosses the, the river um, with a thousand tractors, uh, five, 500 tractors, a thousand bikes, 20,000 people in January. A month later, 60,000 people occupied the motorway. Three months later, 30,000 people came to gather during the summer and um, two months later, in October, there was a massive ritual disguised as a demonstration where uh, people were invited to come with a, a walking stick or a shepherd's staff to plant it in the soil of the, the Zad and make the pledge that they would come back and pick it up if the police, um, came. If the police came. And 40,000 people came and 25,000 sticks were planted in the soil. Um, so that gives a sense of the of the of the strength that this movement had actually built over the the years through yeah as I said an incredible uh, strategic strategic vision and and a capacity for a composition what we call here the composition that is the the willingness to work and organize with people that are very different uh, from you without trying to make them become like you but really work through those differences to be really really strong and, and strategic and so that led to the cancellation of of the airport um but obviously also came with a very strong um punishment because, because as we said before, a government can deal with confrontation. It cannot deal with 
a bunch of people showing to the world for six years that we don't need them and that actually we can self-organize. Um, and that kind of um, insolence has to be has to be punished also because it was really important uh, to say to you know the, the country, um, they have one, you will not. And that this is, you know, and so there was um, the, the prime minister when he announced the cancellation of the airport in the same breath said, and all those that are not legal will have to um, will have to go or be evicted by spring um, by the spring. And um, and so we we tried to um, and and that that basically meant all those who had come on the invitation of the local residents um, eight years before. And uh, and so we presented a legal uh, solution that was uh, rejected. And there was a second massive military operation in April 2018, where they sent like, several thousand cops, helicopters, drones, tanks, um, 11,000 uh, grenades, tear gas grenades and concussion grenades were thrown at us in three days. Um, like a third of the a third of the of the Zad was um, raised, so like, like a good three quarters of the cabins were were raised, um, and there was a an ultimatum that was given to us, which was you know sign this form and and become farmers and you'll be able to stay, and and these forms were individualized because one of the things that came very clearly through that operation was also uh, for them to say you will not carry on with your collective endeavor is that from now on you will be considered and only treated as individuals and this is some this is exactly what we've been fighting um, ever since is and so the response to that form was to actually hack it and to show what the commons are like and to say actually this is a territory where you don't have individuals with their individual projects as then you have people that work together and so all the activities are intertwined and this is this is the basis of what we've been doing for for the last five years is to is to try to um, root that way of doing and still negotiate with the authorities for them to uh, to acknowledge that that period has been I mean the the ultimatum that they gave also gave rise to really really profound uh, conflicts nothing but this is these are these are wounds that don't uh, don't heal uh, very easily and I think that this is also something that needs to be acknowledged is that there is there are the wounds that a police operation um, can inflict but also what the what the, the manipulation of internal uh, fights can can create and so this is also what we have been trying to do is to heal from these, uh, very deep wounds and still build the build the commons but it's still like 200 people um, living here making uh, decisions together through monthly assemblies and 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 still still fighting the fight in another form 
Um, I think I've got a, a video on screen here of it, um, and it's saying that they launched all these grenades. Sorry if I missed this when you were saying, I was just trying to find some video footage if, if I miss you saying it, but they left after two hours? Like after, after this initial assault? Or is that... Is no, no, three days. Thing? Oh, after three days, right. So I don't think mm-hmm. that this is the mm-hmm. actual... And they, didn't really, and they didn't really leave. They said they would leave, but they didn't. Right, okay, yeah. I just wanted to make sure I was getting the right content. It was, yeah, it was a ceasefire. And then what happened is the 63 of the 70 collectives said they would hack the form and sign it. Seven collectives said they refused and they were like, we're squatters, we're never going to legalize. That's, we'd rather die, you know, we'd rather lose than be legal. And though, and then they came back like several weeks later with the drones and the tanks and they destroyed the seven houses of the seven collectives who refused to sign. So it was really like, you sign, you legalize or. Right, right. So you were just talking then about um, where you are, where you're at now and the struggle that's going on now. And that I think, um, to put simply could be described as kind of, you're kind of fighting against the historic enclosures. You're trying to reestablish a sense of, of the commons. Right. Um, and I think that ties in really well with how you ended out the book and some stuff you discussed towards the end of the book as well. Um, the last section in the book is called fuck it, but not like fuck it. It's like, fuck it. The, the conception of the like object that's it, right? Like, there, there isn't an us and then p- people who are, get to be, you know, who get to be people and then it, right? Like a frog or a tree or whatever. It's, you know, I, I wish Kira was here for this. Honestly, she's a, she's a radical vegan and she would really appreciate a lot of this. Um, but she, um, so, but you, you, you know, um, you ended up the book with that and you also talked a little bit uh, towards the end of the book about um, needing to do some like, some logging in the forest there, but you did it in a conservationist way, but there was a bit of an internal struggle because some people wanted to view, view the forest as like an untouchable, like cause should, should be completely left alone. And you instead wanted to like acknowledge your interaction with everything and the, the connection, the relationships between all things. Um, and I think that uh, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear you kind of expand on, on your philosophy on that, um, that position as it, yeah, as you currently feel it really. Like I think that was a really interesting place to leave out the book and it sounds like it really interfaces with what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what's really interesting is in this, this landscape and then what we all learned here is that this landscape is, was actually, it, it's, um, it's called a bockage. It's like, there's 200 kilometers of hedgerow and it's like lots of tiny little, 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 um, uh, fields. Uh, and and that bockage was constructed by by peasant agriculture f- over two hundred years. I mean, so it's it's not a it's not this landscape, wild landscape. And I think what what we try and explain in the book is that actually uh, there's a problem with the word nature. So it's why on in the book uh, we it's like we are nature with um, inverted commas uh, defending itself because. Uh, for us, uh, one of the problems with if we want to find uh, uh, e- ecological justice, uh, one of the great problems is suggesting that nature is outside of ourselves. And this like, this binary of culture nature is is the binary that enables so many other forms of domination to 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 exist. Um, Even towards the end, there you say as well, like maybe nature itself is also like too distancing, and you know maybe it's like we're nature ourselves like we are just one thing you know yeah i mean that's inspired by robin uh 
Will Kimaran, who, who 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 says this idea that you know when we call things it, we forget that they're subjects, and a lot of you know and not a lot of for us you know a, a kind of ecological social revolution involves uh, getting rid of all the binaries of of the modern uh, and to understand a certain entanglement uh, that that we're not um, we're not separate. It's not about reconnect. We don't have to reconnect with nature. We already are nature. I mean, all of our bodies watching this uh, have more DNA in them that it's not human. We have more viral and bacterial DNA than human DNA. So, are we human? Are we viral? Are we, you know? Um, and a lot of recent bi biology shows that actually uh, the, the the all living beings, even from the level of the cell, are sensitive beings that there's feeling there's deep feeling in everything from the cell to an oak tree to a whale those beings sense the world and they sense the world with a certain kind of level of value in that uh they want to live they 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 desire to live and they desire to flourish and that flourishing and that living can only exist through being in connection with the other so, in a sense, it's for us that that this it, it it shows that all beings have a kind of subjectivity to them and an intelligence, not necessarily consciousness, but an intelligence. Intelligence means simply to choose, and they choose to go towards what is good. A root coming down from a plant will choose to go towards more water, will choose to go to more minerals, not choose to go towards a, a piece of toxic, you know, whatever uranium or whatever. Um, and so, this idea that. That there is an intelligence and that there's a subject that the, that the living world are, are are subjective beings like us and who have value and so on and and for us that we have to make this revolutionary shift from this very mechanical uh and and binary thinking that 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 came only 250 years ago through, through the enlightenment uh and it's not to say to reject science at all it's to, to bring back subjectivity into science the scientific method is fine but modernism goes right in the bin <laughs> i think that is also about not falling into the misanthropist trap that would consist of saying oh you know what we hear a lot is like you know the earth doesn't need us and we're actually that humans have destroyed um, are, are destroying life on earth and therefore humans are toxic and and for us that's a really dangerous uh, route because it's not humans who have destroyed that it's a fucking capitalist system so there are loads of humans that if they had not been pushed into that system had ways of life that um or and still have ways of life that are generative and i think that this is why we took the example of the of the care for the forest here because it seemed the most um striking in trying to show what the what the endeavor is which is then if you take the you take the forest um, not as this thing that is untouchable and it's like in in a way you take it as sacred sacred in the sense of the definition by starhawk which is not that thing that you bow down to but the thing that you're prepared to take a stand for yes. and that in the caring for you try to balance their needs the needs of the forest and everything that it encompasses and and your needs so 
you try to actually not see the forest as just resources, not just as, you know, a volume of usable wood, um, but either as this thing that should remain outside of you is that you actually take it as where where you live and that you need to take care of in a way that is going to make its life and your life as long lasting as possible which is in a way not it's not a very difficult logic to apprehend it's a difficult practice to relearn because we've you know we've lost the skills to do that but it's um and and for me the, like the the experience of of looking after the forest in in that way um with this because what it what it actually involves is there a group of people that want to take care of the forest too also developed a kind of common sensibility and, and common gaze, which is something that we've totally lost because everything is so compartmentalized that there is no longer a sense of a common sensibility and sensitivity to where we live that you basically have the group of people that you know even a forest is that you the people who are actually going to choose which trees need to be cut are not going to be the people who are going to cut them are not going to be the people who um, take the trees out and are not going to be the people that sow them and use them is that all that is totally um uh, compartmentalized and and the relearning of just going to the forest as a group of people to learn to learn what it's what it's made of and that the same people are going to be those choosing the trees that need to be felt that are going to be the same people that are going to fell them that it's like that makes an entire difference in the way that you actually live with through the territory that you inhabit i mean you basically start inhabiting and then, and then and because here we've got you know we've got a sawmill we have an incredible uh wood workshop and so we've got also all this you know we're, we're so privileged to have built all these incredible material bases and uh for i mean the idea now as 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 you said uh that you know well now the, the struggle is gone what's what's there but now in a sense all the the material stuff is there so we hope to be a kind of material base for revolutionary practices so you know there's there's food making there's bakeries there's uh, there's a sawmill there's the the wood workshops uh, there's forges there's uh, you know all these things are kind of tools that we put at at the service of 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 movements and struggles now uh, around the around the area that's fantastic that's exactly what i would hope that you would you know want to do with that yeah that's incredible um, I wanted to say on the the thing about eliminating the the distinctions that we have that we've gotten from like enlightenment thinking about um, the distinction between us and nature. Like something I'm writing at the moment has a lot relies quite heavily on like Timothy Morton's hyperobject philosophy and the classic example that's always used in defining a hyperobject is climate change. Right, like th- you are ordering something online and there's microplastics in your bloodstream and you're using your laptop that contains heavy metals that were mined out of the earth and you're ordering this thing it's going to be shipped around all and it's this this object that completely evades immediate perception because it's like it's everything and it touches everything in this in this kind of insidious way but like nature is very much the same thing that like we are animals from this planet 
and we've used resources from this planet to like yes like through the 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 systems that we've organized ourselves into like be very harmful in some ways but also like everything that we've done is still ultimately like is ultimately still earth like we are still one big closed system save like the the few like space missions that we've done it's all it's all in here you know um we are all as much yeah as much as you can say that the kind of example about climate change it's also like a primate uh using a machine invented by primates to like access things you know on the planet that like you know, whatever i don't I, I haven't thought through the kind of counter example of nature but I, I very much think that like where we find ourselves now is is between kind of enormous monsters wrestling for like well one for killing everything on earth and another for the survival of everything on earth uh, in a way i mean when you say that i was just at a conference recently talking about the the fact that there's movements at the moment in france and quite a lot of countries of giving legal personhood to uh living systems such as uh, the the classic example being in new zealand where the river uh indigenous folk have actually gained the 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 river as a living subject it's an it's another shame of our, about our host absences this week because our other host tim is maori and like would probably oh, okay. know wow. some some about this he's very knowledgeable wow. well wow. go on sorry and they were saying that in the european parliament there's these two movements right now people trying to get legal personhood for living systems and people trying to get uh, um, legal personhood for AI and robots. <laughs> and the two, to me, that summed up the kind of the conflicts of our of, of the future in a way. Wow. Well, possibly, possibly not. I mean, a lot of our, a lot of obviously our like robot sci-fi is, is coded, like organized working class discussions. Um, but <laughs> you know, what's a really great book is we are nature defending itself by <laughs> you two. So, um, I wanted to talk about radio klaxon for a second. So, uh, could you tell the audience what radio klaxon was before I kind of ask my questions? The radio klaxon was this, um, amazing, uh, pirate radio that, uh, squatted the, um, airwaves of Radio Vinci. Vinci is this um, enormous multinational that had got the contract to build the airport and um, and it has uh, the management of most of the motorways in France and so it has this um, radio station that gives you, you know, news about traffic mostly um, in between cheesy uh, music and um, and in the area uh, people here set up this um, pirate radio that was squatting this exactly the same um, airwave uh, frequency so basically it was like when you arrived in the area you would put uh, one, 107.7 um, on your radio and you would have, you know, for a bit, you would have the very smooth uh, radio presentation about traffic and all of a sudden you would hear a bit of a crackle and um, and you would get much, much more alive kind of radio programming. And during, um, during the evictions is that it was an absolutely key uh, tool uh, to give information about uh, police movements and what was needed and and to give like really up to the minute grassroots information um so and it was it had this um brilliant slogan which was uh radio klaxon was a pirate radio made by pirates who have never made radio before and it says a lot about the spirit of 
um, of radio klaxon. That's perfect. I love that. Um, so in the book, you were talking about how radio klaxon would map the exact locations of the police when the police were coming to try to kick you off or during the kind of ongoing long term struggle you had where the police would be coming up to the barricades and hoping to make some kind of progress and you'd kind of have to face off against them. And um, yeah, I was really struck by that. We, we, you know, we, we've talked to cop watch networks before. And it's definitely like something that we are, yeah, have, have kind of observed that like, in its in its finest, best form, like cop watch could be this kind of like, ability to put the information of what the police are trying to do directly into the hands of people who are trying to resist the police. Um, uh, yeah, and I think that like, yeah, I, I don't know, it was just very striking the idea of that kind of coordination. But um, you said that, yeah, they described themselves as uh, pirate radio by pirates who've never made radio before. Um, so I guess I wanted to ask like how much you knew about their, that where they got that ability to be mapping out. So like um, resourcefully and providing that information, like the kind of, I guess, networking of information. Knowing the territory, that was one of the things. And certainly during the first um, military operation, the one that failed, this is one of the things that made a massive difference is that cops are generally, um, and certainly in France, not trained to um, to fight in rural areas. They're really trained for urban areas. So, And the fact that they were here on a very, uh, very, very rural area at a time where the weather was, I mean, it was, it was in winter and it was extremely wet and muddy. Um, so that made a, a, a big difference because people here knew the territory and there was a, there was a system of, um, it was a combination of walkie talkies, mobile phones and radio and, and they but also and CV. And yeah, and CB like really old, uh, old uh, communication system of TVs, and and the combination of these uh, various systems um, meant that Radio Claxon could actually uh, gather very, very precise and uh, and up to date um, information because it had been it had been thought through uh, really well. Uh, before and it was nice because it wasn't just uh giving you information about where the cops were over those you know months of the was that was operation caesar was kind of one 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 month long really uh but it was also giving you hope and energy with you know you know so it would say oh the cops are here and then it would put a you know a great piece of flamenco radical flamenco one or something so it would yeah it was information and and it was infotainment one could say <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it would be very cool if someone did that kind of thing for the worldwide struggle against capitalism um <laughs> there was a particular thing and this might be a longer discussion there was just a section in here where I, I will admit to have lost track of which which of you was talking in the first person when you wrote this but one of you was saying about your mother having died and um having like that she had alzheimer's and that you were kind of in the you were in the zad and there were like all these uh this chorus of frogs it was the scene you were describing um i just found it very moving my dad recently died of uh, neurodegenerative illness um and you so you know kind of spoke to me on that level but like also you you said that like you felt like the zad was um in many ways a resistance to forgetting 
Um, and I just was really moved by the idea. And I w- was wondering if we could discuss that a bit. Um, like the it has a as a yeah being against forgetting really. I mean, I think there's lots of levels of forgetting that capitalism pushes. I mean, the first level of forgetting is to forget that you know uh, everything we take for granted came from struggle and mostly from disobedience. You know, so the fact that you know people identify as women have the right to wear trousers, the right, the fact that we have a weekend, the fact that we can use contraception, uh, the fact that we have an eight-hour day, or unions, or can strike, or we can even you know run a independent Twitch channel. All these things come because actually uh, you know uh, people disobeyed. So that's the first great big forgetting that people kind of you know. And obviously the other forgetting is, you know, all the stories of struggles. And, and I think in my own life, I've always been very, it's very important to to kind of document the struggles I've been involved in and, you know, publish stuff around that written by grassroots and not wait that your struggle is written about by the academics or, or the journalists or whatever, that actually it's the grassroots who are writing their own history of the struggles. Well, that's interesting. Sorry, if I might just interject, I do want to hear the rest of the sentence, but I just want your, you cited David Graeber in the book. You, when you say write, written about by the academics, I was wondering if, what's your position on direct action and ethnography? David was not just an academic though. Yeah, yeah. He was not, he was not stuck in the ivory tower. It's like he was very much, on the ground too and i think that that makes a big difference yeah yeah, I mean, yeah that's yeah. what i loved about him as well yeah okay yeah. i just wanted to check in on it yeah yeah yeah, Sorry yeah. For most academics that. shall we say there are a few examples of you know a lot of activists are sadly you know i mean look what happened to feminism you know i mean it's you know the the, the, the academia is an incredibly good machine for uh basically taking people off the street and also i think that for me the the that was also a place to it's interesting. I mean, that Alzheimer's has a lot of uh, research that shows that Alzheimer's also comes from people who feel deeply lonely. And there's a, you know, I think there's a there's a clearly an epidemic of solitude. You know, capitalism creates an epidemic of solitude. And I think that that also enabled us to remember that actually working together and being together and creating communities, even though those communities are complex and difficult and stressful and but actually in the end that uh you know that's what as as human beings that we're we're we're, we're people you know what we need we need people around us that are both human and more than human so you know that actually it's not just about being with with our, our friends and our comrades and so on but it's also about feeling a close affinity to the oak trees that are that we live next to or uh or the cows that we kill to eat or uh whatever so um, and it's also, I think, I think the thing we really learned here uh, is this idea of uh, that you know that freedom for us is not this kind of liberal capitalist idea of freedom that you're a kind of electron that you're this free electron, but that actually freedom is based on on ties and links, uh, and that you know we're free because we are linked to our food, we're linked to our water. We have a house over our heads. Uh, we have friends and lovers. We're free because of those links, not because we break chains. That's not freedom. That's solitude. In a sense. I think that's really powerful. Um, and it's something I think about quite a lot because we are in the belly of the beast, as it were, just uh, we're incentivized to separate from each other. And there is this horrible 
um, I've taken to calling capitalism and, and imperialism uh, a bastardization of the human experience. Um, because as I say, we're incentivized to uh, get rid of our dead wood. Like something that my dad always says, like, get rid of your dead wood. Like you don't want these people getting in, in the way of your life. You just, you just get rid of them. And, you know, when, when I'm normally when he says this thing, I'm talking about a friend that I deeply love who's having a hard time. And what a horrible place that we've become, like, that, we've, that we've got to in society where when I'm sitting down and saying, like, I am concerned for someone that I love, um, that most people's advice is just fuck them off, bro. Like, just get rid of them. Like, who cares? Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it is, of course, easy because the system enables us to do that because we live, as you rightly point out, we don't all live in a place like Zad. We live in these boxes, uh, you know, that are very close together and small in some cases, but we're very far apart from each other uh, spiritually. And, you know, yeah, you can have this like very sort of like easy, quote unquote, easy life where you're just like, uh, you know, whatever, I'll just watch Netflix and and I'll just forget about it. I'll play my video games and I can watch Twitch and I can watch YouTube and just that's fine. And, you know, it doesn't matter if I've got a mate down the road who is really fucking struggling with like bipolar. And I know that he's like having the worst time in the world. That's always in the back of your head, though. And these things. I do think like when you said about cells and, you know, that they have feelings like I think that we cannot escape this stuff. And I think that we absorb absolutely fucking everything that is extremely negative in our world and our society. And sort of like that connection that you that you've uh, uh, just sort of spoken about then of like Alzheimer's. Uh, being a, a product of loneliness, potentially. That's what people are, are sort of looking at. Like isolation is something that, that uh, you know, speeds it on or whatever. Um, then it kind of makes so much sense, right? Because isolation, not just, you know, is something that that is, you know, going to help out Alzheimer's or dementia or something like that. But it's also going to literally like, um, it's going to cause all sorts of other mental health issues. Um, and, I think about this all the time in, in sorts of like, you know, like you say, like where, where does the meat come from? And, and, you know, when, 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 when vegans are talking about like, oh my God, there are, there are some meat eaters and they just, they won't listen and this and the other. And it's like, I don't know if it's that they won't listen. I think everybody is very, very deeply aware that like, not only that, you know, killing animals is fucking a bit barbaric in some cases, but um, it's also very people are very much aware that we're killing the planet and it's like these two things you can sort of say well if the system stopped doing that then people wouldn't do it and then then people would sort of like you know i just feel like it's like these systems i don't think people really understand just how deeply pervasive it is and we try and reach out to people in, in, on an individualistic level and like make it like, well, you've got to make the change. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And it's like, no, we've all got to do it together. We've all got to come together and start, you know, making, I don't want to say allowances because obviously there are certain people that you can't work with. You can't work with Nazis. You can't work with fascists. Um, but there are people that you can, you know, maybe not see eye to eye with on certain issues that are not harmful right you know when we talk about like what is harm what is hurt and stuff and i think that we need to have a more 
broadly um, sort of collective understanding, especially on the online left, that we are able to create spaces like not just spaces because it's not really a space, but a um, a foundation like Zad, right? Because this is all entirely possible. You can just go and do it. And you two and the people that you live with are living proof of that. Um, so I, I just on this subject of like forgetting and stuff, it, you, you're absolutely spot on. It's so, so, so pervasive just how much we're encouraged to forget. Like, yeah, okay, you go uh, finish work, have a pint. You know, why is alcohol so popular in the Imperial Corps? Well, it's because it makes you forget like literally like you drink to forget. Um, so yeah, that's my sort of two cents on that. And I think, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's really important to talk about this collective love and compassion and sharing of, of, of life, like just the actual sort of like very essence of life and spirituality sort of interconnected. We need to get a bit more hippified is what I'm saying. Basically. Well, I, was, I think we're, you know, we're born, we, we, we're born. I think we're, everyone is born with a, hippie um gland and a punk gland and, and a punk gland and the life is how do you find the the balance between your punk gland and your hippie gland <laughs> and i think that i mean i i entirely agree with what with what you said and i think that i mean certainly the experience on on the zad and on collectives before is also that we need to relearn to um live and work as collectives because i think that one of the things that this system has done is also to very very methodically destroy those skills and that's that's one of the 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 great difficulties is that when you when you start um doing the kind of thing that we do and I think that people who have you know lived collectively lived in squats organized in social movements will will know how hard it is sometimes to just be and do together because because we've been taught to not do it and and one of the things that is really pervasive in the dominant discourse is that it's too hard. We can't do it. It's like, you know, it's it's all about, you know, man is a is a wolf. What is it? Is wolf whatever you're saying. <laughs> it's like the tooth and claw oh, yeah. kind of mythology. And I think that this is this this idea that we keep on being told. And certainly when you live on the Zad, it's quite extraordinary. You know, the number of people who say, Oh yeah, I mean, being with loads of people like that, I couldn't do it. And it's like, isn't it really, really hard to live and work with people? It's like, yes, it is. But, you know, like, I don't have the feeling that living on your own is that much fun either. So we need to relearn those skills and we need to have compassion and and immense amount of patience as well for ourselves also when we um, struggle and to do to do that and i think that that's it's really important to find loads and loads of different opportunities and circles to relearn those skills because because if we don't relearn them it's like then then we don't have a way out and i think that it's really important to bear in mind that this can be done in any setting 
It's like I think that one of the things that I'm concerned about is like when we talk about this, I decide however much I absolutely love this place and feel really inspired. I definitely wouldn't want to give the impression that that's that that's the only way to actually go about living revolutionary life. I think that, you know, there, like you know, they are collectives and co-ops that can be set up in cities and it's like and the thing that it's all contextual and and diversity is is key and i think that what we need to relearn is those collective skills wherever we are rather than actually think oh yeah but you know it's the zad is they can do it because you know they own four thousand acres of land and you know and we don't i live I live in a block of flats in a in a big city, so you know I'm kind of screwed. Is is it's a shame, but you know what can I do? I'm not on the land. It's that actually, you know, it's possible. It's possible everywhere, and I think that it's it's probably more difficult in in large cities. But I really think it's possible, and it needs to be because the system needs to be dismantled everywhere, and especially where it's at its strongest, and that's in metropolis. Yes. Absolutely. 100%. I think I know what you were trying to get out earlier when you said that uh, people try and say that man is like a, a wolf. Like the they, people imply that our human nature is is greedy and um, sort of violent towards each other. Like we're, we're, we're naturally it's a French inclined. expression. That's why I got that's why I got <laughs> lost is that there's a French expression that says man is 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 a wolf for man which is right. you know like, keep the oh, man thing. it's a doggy dog world i know but it doesn't translate that's yeah. why i got i got <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah i'm with you yeah and i and i i try and push back about uh, on that all the time because uh we're not born like that you know and this is something that i'm going to be saying in uh me and sophia going to, to oxford university in a couple of weeks and we're going to do a speech and this is something i'm going to say in this speech to sort of incentivize these kids to you know keep their rebellious streak sort of because you know we're not we're not machines you know we're not like these uh, uh i guess emotionless uh sigma grind set sort of sort of people that it is you know we're, we're definitely down to like get rid of our dead world kind of thing we're born uh you know beautiful perfect bizarre luminescent uh, you know beings that are just molded by our horrific environment like you say like the pervasive nature of the system um you know we've found um i forget the name i think it's lorna tilly was an anthropologist that found uh, at least 30 examples of um, early ancient humans from from forty five thousand to six thousand years ago, um, who have cared for people who were born disabled. Sort of, they found out from looking at the bones that they were born disabled, and they lived into elderly age as being. Oh. And the only way that they could live that long is because they were cared for by their community. And that is yeah. simply proof that we are not like this as a species. If you want to call it like that you know and I, I think yeah it's a really important thing to remind people sorry Sophie I didn't mean to cut you no, off no this is I mean this is great I'm just I'm, I'm having a great time hearing <laughs> you chatting with with, with Issa and Jay because like I for me the person who uh helped me understand our comrades both human and non-human uh in a really significant way was was is DJ Mule 
Uh, so it's really cool having you two, like you three chat together because I'm just like, uh, so it's something we like to do. Uh, we go uh, mushroom foraging together. Uh, we found some woodland blue at the other day. It was really nice. Um, and, you know, uh, it was those experiences doing that over the last couple of years that's like really, uh, you know, hippie pilled me, I guess, like really like made me start to see like the the, the tree and the moss and the 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 frog and the sheep and and the mushroom and all of this stuff like the the real real interconnectedness of it what did um, we what did we do when we got to the top of the hill for the first bit when we last went do you remember what we did and it was only because <laughs> it was only because i was being no no, no it's only because we i was being a bit of a, a a hippie uh basically just stood on the top of the hill and screamed like we're alive yeah. like just oh. screaming <laughs> you know because yeah, because that yeah. is it. Like when you go and you do these things, and I know it sounds really you just feel cringe. alive. Yeah, like that's it. Because when you go out and you do this stuff and you connect with the land in a way that you know, like Easter and Jay have been have been saying, like it's been taken away from us. You start to realize, like, oh shit, everything is fucking beautiful, right? Like everything is, yeah. So I think that cringing at sincerity, like the sincerity of like loving nature and and the yeah like you know hippiness or whatever is very it's very much comes out of like a very pessimistic worldview where a lot of people have gotten used to their suffering used to their oppression used to their alienation used to the fact that they've forgotten that they're human beings and forgotten that they're part of nature and yeah. like it's easy to look like the smartest person in the room if you're always saying everything's fucked and it'll always be fucked because bad stuff will keep on happening and then everyone will go like wow he was right oh my god what a genius <laughs> and it's like it's a lot harder if you say things will be good because then the first time things go wrong people start to say well you don't know what you're talking about but actually like it's important to stick to your optimism and stick to your sincerity and stick to like the truth that we all like matter to each other and as as Isra and Jay are saying like that everyone uh you know every being human and non-human has a has a subjectivity and has an experience of the world that matters and like it's just true and and i guess i think that like if we're talking about like the metropolis versus the the countryside or the commons or you know nature <laughs> like the the it's so much like a very metropolitan attitude to cringe at like um I remember like my, I don't know, people like uh, saying to me, um, wow, I know it's a cliche to say that you should like just log off and turn your phone off. But I went, I went out to, for a camping trip and it was amazing. And it's like, well, like, why do you even need to preface it with that? It's only because we've gotten so used to the fact that we can't escape at all from from like capitalist society i'm so i'm uh, extremely like online pilled to be clear to you two i um <laughs> i'm writing a long thing called cyberpunk 2023 a direction for the online left um i'm also very hippie pilled so i am working <laughs> on balancing my hippie and my punk glands but like i i very much think that the internet is like out of modernist society is a an innovation that will like deeply reshape our experience and our future because of the like the effect of the consciousness witnessing itself like how much we were all plugged into each other's brains but i think that like because of its deeply like metropolitan nature it then also is just completely poisoned with all of this like irony and cringe and people just like taking the suffering as it exists now and just being like that'll never change so anyone saying that it'll change is is just cringe um <laughs> and like and um yeah how we uh, sorry i'm getting a little bit into my my own uh, personal soapbox now but um it 
my point that I was trying to get at in the first place was like, it's just, it is great, you know, uh, you, having you two here and, and hearing you chat with DJ Mule, because like, I um, really appreciate the perspective that he's helped me to form. And, uh, you know, you two express very, very similar stuff um, very eloquently in the book that I, um, I feel blessed that I've experienced it firsthand through my friendship with Mule um, to like be able to read it and be like, yeah, I know what this is about. It's really good. Which I'm now realizing is why you tagged me in the Discord this week and said you need to read this book. <laughs> Un unfortunately forgetting that that is the one thing that makes me never do anything <laughs> when I'm told to do something. The one foundation of our friendship is is, is Mule hippie-pilling me. The other foundation of our friendship is me trying to get Mule to read books I like <laughs> and him getting really mad at me because his ADHD forbids him from reading any books. Yeah basically okay yeah. i get it all now i understand it all like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. fuck what what i've been uh, hoisted by my own petard is that the right phrase i don't know don't yeah. read it. it comes from the french <laughs> yeah right exactly <laughs> so i have a question about the zad uh currently how many people roughly are living on the zad now so now we're about 170 in about 40 different living collectives uh, yeah wow and is that sort of is that sort of organized as like because I'm I'm in in my sort of metropolitan uh trying to cause rock within the Imperial Corps, I'm in a tenants union. Um, and is that sort of organized in the same way that like a housing, so you call it a housing collective? And would that be the same as like um how that is organized in a city? Like basically you all sort of, I guess you would pay some kind of, I don't know area tax or council tax something like that but you organize it all collectively or like how is that organized well i mean the one of the things about the zad is that there's no one thing that we all do. i mean each living collective is very different so you'll have some living collectives with like 20 people and they maybe share all their income and so on you'll have other living collectives with like four people and they'll have you know their own income they won't share it um You'll have some living collectives, like our living collective, we're 10 here uh, in our collective and we, uh, with one kid, and we eat together, you know, we eat together every every meal, well, the people who are in the house will eat together every meal, or other, other collectives who only eat once in the evening or, or just in, so every collective is kind of very different and has different ways of dealing with their economy or, um there is a kind of form of life which is fairly, uh, which has emerged where for basically all the collectives have either a big central cabin or a farmhouse. And then that's where there'll be the kitchen, the bathroom, uh, maybe an office, um, the eating room, the living room. And then everyone has either caravans or cabins or yurts or around where they have their bedrooms and so on uh so you have your own bedroom but outside of the main house and then you have your house where, where you have your collective uh living the whole all the collectives are brought together but again not all the collectives because there are some collectives who don't uh i mean there's a very minority of collectives who don't recognize this institution but there is an institution called the assembly of the usages which uh, is held every month and that's about 100 people who come together but it's not just people who live on the land it's also people who are in the movement to save the land from the airport who come so you'll have farmers or or local people from local villages who come to that meeting and that meeting 
deals with the use of the land so uh and also the conflicts uh that arise or um and and the struggle that and the negotiations i mean so the land we now have uh, 800 acres of the land is now legalized uh so there's three types of land here now there's 800 acres that belong to the movement or don't belong to the movement are used by the movement belong to the state but the right. state has given us 10-year leases on that land there's land which is used by the historic farmers so these are the farmers who refuse to sell their land to the airport project and then there's land that is used by the farmers who did sell their land to the airport project and are still using their land. We call them the cumulards. But the housing isn't legalized yet. So we're still in negotiation with the state and the department about the housing. So we're still squatting. All the houses are still squats, even though the land is legalized. So um and that's that those negotiations. We basically wanted to uh buy the land as a kind of housing co-op. It doesn't exist, the housing co-op legalization in uh, legal status in in, the, in France but right. wanted to do a similar kind of thing and buy all land and we set up a foundation and we raised 800,000 euros to do that and the state said no we're not selling you anything um, again because they knew that if they sold it to us we would run it as commons I mean Macron you know President Macron went on the TV twice doing the evictions to say there would be no commons on the ZAD I mean it, you know to, it's really incredible to see how you know, the word commoning has been kind of is used by, you know, green entrepreneurs and is used in some of the language of, you know, of capital. But actually, when you really, you know, include that into a struggle, uh, then it's refused totally. Um, so, yeah, so I don't know if I answered your question. I think that was a really thorough description of the organization. Yeah, I think um, it might be changing tack a bit. But um, a question I have was because you discussed a little in the book like temporary autonomous zones and then you talked about like making sure that people understood the zad was not a temporary autonomous zone i was kind of wondering if we could have a chat about temporary autonomous zones a bit because like uh, i know a lot of people's entry into some kinds of more radical thought about how we could just change our living situations came with the capitol hill autonomous zone uh in the u.s some other people have kind of been a bit inspired by the ways that like uh, extinction rebellion set up little zones when they're doing like occupy kind of protests um in the uk uh, and i was kind of wondering yeah like what you thought about like i guess the the nature of those kinds of temporary zones well i think that you know it's like we can say that the both of us were very inspired by you know the the essay uh that um that was published in the 80s, nineties. Uh, that that concept 90s. that conceptualized the autonomous zone in that, you know, that that possibility to dream up um, a space where even temporarily you can actually have different ways of organizing and and to to kind of feel that there is a possibility for having at least a suspension of this system that feels so ever encroaching and so ubiquitous. And so I really, I certainly don't, I, I think that there is great value in experiencing that. I think that the limitation I see in, um, in the temporary autonomous zone is when it becomes a bit of an ideology 
And because I think that actually that plays into the system of nothing ever lasts. And, and therefore you don't have to commit uh, truly uh, for anything because then you can, you can try that one and then, oh, when that one is done, you move to the next one and you move to the next one. And I think that actually that is kind of poisoned by the capitalist mentality and and certainly something that I feel is so valuable in the experience of what we're trying to do here is to and what is so incredibly hard um, is to actually experience the change of temporality that you have when you move from a struggle against a project like in our case the struggle against an international airport and then when that target and uh, disappears because that actually you've won and that your struggle moves into um a temporality that you want to be multi-generational and i think that that's i mean it's it's extraordinary what it does to uh you individually and how you organize and i think that this is something that we also need to relearn is to have that kind of capacity to organize through and for a kind of multi-generational objective with a sense of um, emergency and that really fucks with your head like to be able to like it's you know it's everything is really urgent and yet we need to we need to be able to to think and organize for the long term and the thing that you know this um what a lot of indigenous uh, communities talk about is that you need to make every decision considering the seven generations before and the seven generations after that is something that we've totally lost and we were talking about the 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 depths of forgetting. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like it's a very, very modern construction of like our generational warfare, like people, people being like, ah, oh, boomers and Gen Xers and Zoomers and millennials, like, and, and and talking so much shit about different age groups and generations. And it's just like, what, that's your family you're talking about. Like, what are yeah, you doing? Exactly. And also to conceptualize it as though there was this absolutely massive difference between, you know, the generation whatever it's like we're talking about 20 years difference between people and it's kind of but to actually re reweave the sense of where it is that we're coming from and you know and a sense of having elders and a sense of having ancestors and and also to be able to project for a long time not just you know my own lifetime where actually I'm in denial that I'm going to age one day. So, you know, I'm kind of doing things with a very, very short um, time span in the way that I conceive of what I do. And I think that this is what in the end we end up doing collectively. And I think that that really makes um, a massive, a massive difference. And this is something that we need to, yeah, we need to relearn. And it was also, and it was interesting, used in the struggle because the, the government 
a lot of the imaginary that the government, while the anti-airport struggle was happening, they put a lot of the the imaginary that they put was, well, not only that it was an outlaw zone, so it was dangerous because there was no police, uh, but also that it was a, a, a protest camp, that it was a camp, that it was cabins and and huts and 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 tents and and protest camps are by their nature temporary you know and normally you know you set up a protest camp and then it loses the camp gets evicted and then you build the road or the airport or nuclear power station or whatever uh, and we were we had a whole a whole kind of project knowing that you know for us struggle is a battle of the imagination um and the the project was called building uh, building solid and it basically meant uh, that we would build really big fuck off buildings to say, look, actually, we're not here. We're, this isn't a protest camp. We're here. We're going to win. And we're going to be here for like one of the barns that we built. It's a medieval barn. It's like huge. It's like it's the size of these old 14th century barns built in the same uh, with the same wood techniques. Some of those barns date from the they're still up there in the 14th century from the 14th century. You know, they, they date, you know, 700 years. Um, and and so it was really to say, look, we're we're here to stay. I mean, we're speaking here just well, just over there, like 100 meters over there we built a lighthouse where they wanted to build the control tower. So we built a 20 meter working lighthouse to say, we don't want a control tower. We want a lighthouse to welcome people to the ZAD, to show the dangers of capitalism, to show the storms that are, are, are coming. And so all these big structures were also very much to shift the imagination of temporariness to say, we're not temporary, we're going to win and we're staying beyond our lifetime. And I think that is also... I mean, one of the things that we felt very, very inspired here was to to be in a movement that had that that long term vision even before uh, winning. Because one of the things that, for instance, the movement did here was just after Operation Caesar basically unraveled. Um, so that's the Operation Caesar was exactly t- ten years ago. I'm saying. 2020, uh, 2012 and from 2013 the movement was like we can win this shit and it's like and the immediate question is like and what would it be like to win and what would it mean to actually think about what victory would be like afterwards and so there was this big cycle of discussions that uh, was organized and that produced a manifesto that was called um, because there will be no airport on in Notre Dame des Landes, the six points for the future of the ZAD, which meant that there was this capacity already not to say we don't want an airport, but because there will be no airport. Therefore, that was a movement that was that was ready to kind of play to win, which I think a lot of the left is pretty rubbish at doing. There is this mentality of actually to show that you're right and to show that your cause is worthy, you need to basically go into a martyr mentality. And if yeah, we've gotten, we've gotten so used to like capitalist compromises and recuperation that we're asking the earth and expecting the moon. We're just very much like abolition. And then they're like, we could defund the police a little. And then it turns out they're actually giving more funding to the police. And we're like, oh, that wasn't, uh, you know exactly and the movement here was able to actually say no we're it's not that it's not that we don't yeah. want it it's like it's not going to happen 
and also to actually project and to, to think about, you know, what would this territory be like afterwards? Mm. And, and that capacity to, to think long term, um, I think really made a massive difference in the, in the strength that it could harness. And we talk about these things in the book a bit. In, there's a whole section where we talk about the link between magic and activism in a, in a way. If magic is about creating a certain intensity uh, and, and making uh, your will, uh, your desires take place, radical politics is the same stuff you know you you live as if you were i mean david graver used to live say you know direct action is living as if you were free uh yes, and, and yes absolutely you know as if is this kind of magical formula you know you live as if something is going to happen and then it, it you make it happen through putting a lot of energy and intensity into into a desire that's why revolutionary optimism is so powerful because if yeah. we believe that we will win then we will yeah you know, and you need to create a shared that optimism has to be shared. And I think, but it's not for, for for us. It's not about determinism either. I think there's just as much danger as being absolutely determinist sometimes as being at, uh, determinist either with the world's going to end and it's all fucked and there's no point in doing anything. Or it's fine. We're going to have a revolution in, in two years' time and don't worry, it's all going to be fine. So both are forms of determinism, and we're very inspired by a, a comrade book. Uh, uh, Rebecca Solnit, who's a, an old friend of ours and who wrote this beautiful book called Hope in the Dark. And she says, you know, hope, uh, in a sense, uh, begins in darkness, because in darkness, when you don't know what's going to happen, everything is possible. And she shows how in social movements, so often people didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And, and, and lots of chance happened. And the idea of just being open to the possibility of change is is enough you don't have to be deterministic and she says you know radical change is, is more like a crab mo moving sideways than an army moving forwards it's more like water dripping than you know than a straight line um and it's i think that's that's uh also really important to, to to be have that sense of maybe in in the dark sometimes hope is the most powerful she said in the darkness yeah, I think hope, or if you want to call it faith or belief, I think that there's, or as you're saying with kind of magic, like a kind of there's intentionality and it kind of is brought together in, in into such a concentration, it gets intense enough and it changes things. Like um, people in chat have already been saying this, so I'm going to tell a, a short anecdote that chat already knows to you two um, that um, my partner was at a protest at a, at a rage resistance. Um, where you know the Home Office had come in and had snatched this guy out of his house, and then his neighbors had said, you know, fuck you, no, we don't, we don't want you to just like abduct our neighbor. And then um, because of the kind of the the race between whether the the police can get more people there or the or the just the local neighborhood can get more people who who care to protest it rapidly, like um, it wound up with like two hundred people there, and they had a, an amazing guy who was who was leading a lot of like protest chants in the in the raid resistance, and he. And he said to them all, repeat after me. And he said, I, and they said, I, and they said, I believe. And they said, I believe. And it went like this. I believe we, I believe we will. I believe we will win. And then they all just started chanting, I believe we will win over and over again. And just 200 people versus like, you know, one squad of police who is seeing 200 people say, I believe we will win over and over again. And then they did, you know, run them out of Peckham chanting like, don't come back to Peckham. Don't come back to pack. It was fantastic, you know. Um, and I think that, like, that is probably the distinction I would make is, like, um, 
always complacency is bad always um uh, uh, any any like certainty it'll be fine i don't i don't have to do anything because it'll be fine is just as paralyzing as i can't do anything because it's all fucked um but i think believing with a with a, a concrete thing in mind that you're pushing to in that moment and at the same time like knowing what the longer term implications are uh isa you were saying this yeah like the, this uh dual kind of consideration of like urgent things but also for the long-term future um like i think that's it for me i think is like belief is for like believing you will you will win in in this in this struggle you're in right now and then like kind of um longer considerations are for like yeah for the for the longer term i guess if that makes sense i agree um however unfortunately what i also agree with is that it's time for questions um, <laughs> smooth smooth transition i'm pretty good at that uh it has been time for questions for a bit but i am so entranced uh by our guests honestly i've had such a, a great time and uh maybe in the future we could get you on again um honestly because, yeah yeah i think yeah because you have so an incredible one to talk to so many more uh things to talk about but let's get started with the questions yeah i'll read the first one yes. jenny azoff asked from chat uh how does someone go about finding a place to live like the zad without being evicted well i mean i think the the key is build you know that you don't do it just with yourself you do it with a bunch of other people and you build uh, a cultural resistance around you 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 know you don't isolate yourself from the local community as a kind of radical ghetto uh, if we'd done that, if we'd isolated the Zad as a radical ghetto, we'd have lost this, you know, we wouldn't be speaking from a year. This would be the duty-free shop and there'll be the runway right there and the control tower right there. Uh, you know, so the most, I think the most important thing is that those radical spaces are porous and convivial and connected to the neighbourhoods around and that they build a cultural resistance so that when the police come in to try and evict you, then, like in the raid situation that Sophie just described, you have whatever hundred people stopping the police coming in. So yeah, don't do it alone, and and open yourself up to 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 as much as possible. Um, the isolation of radical projects has been the death of many many leftist, especially kind of utopian community projects. And I think that that's very often um, evidence of the confidence that you can have in your own politics it's like what i would have seen in many movements that uh, fear those who are less radical than them and do not want to work with those who are less radical because you know it's like we are anarchists and we're not going to work with trade unionists because they are sellouts or you know those it's like there are always loads of very good reasons why we should only stay amongst um, ourselves and that leads to the risk that Jay just described is that actually yes you are you know you're pure and radical but you're fucking alone and actually when when you need to build coalitions to be strong then you don't have that and you can uh, convince yourself that that is the martyr you know, situation that you knew proves that you're a good radical. So it's a it's a completely self-sustaining um, discourse and and situation. And and I think that it's really really important to um, to get out of that because, as I said, I think that very often it comes or 
I have the impression that it comes also from a lack of confidence in your own politics. Is that if you if you are confident that your your politics, and that means not just your convictions, but your capacity to actually deploy them, you know, on the ground. Is that what does it mean to actually be an anarcho-communist when you are on the land and you need to work with people, you need to work with farmers, and you need to work with people who are going to cut wood from the forest and cut it and say, you know, how does that shit looks like? Is that if you're confident in that, then you can work with other people who are not you because you're going to stand your ground and you're going to be interested in what you have to, in what they have to say. You're not going to feel threatened. So when you start feeling threatened, it's because you're not feeling that strong. And I think that this is also like you can, and you can build strength in your own convictions and your own capacity through learning and uh, to work with other people. And as Mio was saying before, it's not to say that every alliance is is possible. It's like you need to have limits. Um, and that's that's really important. And and that's that's the name of the game. It's like where do you put those limits when, why, you know, it's like that's yeah. So but building that kind of wealth of alliances is is really really important believe that you can contaminate the others rather than be diluted yeah absolutely not everyone believes what i believe but my beliefs do not require them to and you've uh, you've spoken about that before aren't you as well sophie um in sort of like people refusing to work with like people who call themselves marxist leninist groups and stuff like that right like... yeah just like we're, if, we're, if we're aiming for a communist world, like a socialist world, an anarchist world, a communist world, if we're aiming for a world where people care about each other and take care of one another and, and climate change doesn't kill us all, um, yeah, then, then let's just do it. Um, so the next question comes from Pupbug. Do you want to read it, Mule? Yeah. Do you recommend that people get professionally trained as clowns if they want to get into clown activist spaces? Uh, and what would you recommend? Absolutely. I mean, what we always used to, <laughs> uh, what we always used to do. So we used to have, we had this training methodology that we we developed, and then we would uh, go and do it. It was a we would do a weekend. In fact, we actually got funded by the British state to train two hundred clowns. Uh, that's a long story. But going up to the G eight, we got managed to get the money from the Arts Council because the G eight was in Scotland, and the trainings were on a tour all the way up through Britain. But the action was in Scotland, so it wasn't. Scottish Arts Council, the English Arts Council that gave us the funding and we did weekend trainings and got 200 clowns up to the G8. But that's another story. But during those trainings, we would get say to people, go find a professional clown in your neighbourhood uh, who's obviously, you know, uh, feels that this is a good a tactic uh, and get them to train you. And actually the clown army that was the, one of the best clown armies was the one that did exactly that from Paris. They were called the Brigade Activist Clown. And they did some amazing actions and were really brilliant. And it was because every week they were training with a, a professional clown. So yes to professional clowns. Wow. Very I love nice. that. Uh, that was a nice short one. So Zeme asks, um, as a musician, I'd be very interested to hear any other ways you've used music in the community other than the pirate radio, which sounds really great. Any use of electronic music, for example? What you're pulling you back? Mean, is that, is that, is that or general activism? I think they. Were, I think gen, any any examples of music being used that you want to talk about? I did run a workshop on the use of music and disobedience, 
for a festival in Berlin, an electronic music festival in Berlin, CTM. If you do a search, you might find that where there is a bit of a presentation about uh, the use of music and so on. Um, I mean, I'm lucky. I was, you know, I I I learned a lot of this by being in Reclaimed Streets. So that was a mixture of kind of anarchists, ecologists, communists, ravers, artists, queers, um, basically holding these big street parties and seeing the power of electronic music to bring people together and have great fun reclaiming spaces. Um, my um here on the zad what's been in, very interesting is so we're constantly getting concerts and people coming in doing gigs and so on and that's that's normal but there was a group of uh people who wrote uh they hacked traditional songs so often call and response songs um and turned them into stories of the struggle so and it was a way of not forgetting the history of our own struggle so you they would sing and they were all very funny and cheeky these songs and you so you would sing them so they would go a line and then everyone would sing them so they were a great way of learning the history of your struggle through a kind of oral passing of an oral songs and they were really really amazing um and yeah i mean electronic music gets i mean i'll never forget uh when was it when I was still living in London and we trashed the Tory headquarter tower in Millbank. And that was led by some, you know, by a little sound system with some really good fucking drum and bass on it. And that got the crowd really riled up. So they went and and trashed the Tory HQ in at Millbank. Um, so, what also is like, you know, there is a, like, the illegal rave parties that are still being organized do it with you know such direct action skills that you know really needs to be um learned from and it's like there are loads and loads of direct action groups that should just go to a few raves see how they organize to get people you know in some cases to get thousands of people to the right uh, to the right point and uh And without then, getting caught without getting caught and then and then actually just you know kind of have that joy and and sense of fun and and I think that in some cases it's I think that in some cases it's pure escapist you know hedonism but I think that in many cases it can also be um very very political and and that and that becomes political when it gets um reintroduced back into social movements yeah i mean that's the key is to work with the movement there was a, just a an action recently here that got a lot of headlines against this big industrial water basin and seven thousand people had to go through there was a thousand police and it was an open landscape and there were there the, the folk put a big sound system on a four by four Like, sorry, is this um, Bastien's non messy? Yes, ah, you know about it. We did this in the news last week, yeah. Oh, amazing. So, it was a, and they had a sound system disguised as a duck because it's there's a, a duck. Look, it's not a duck, a bird. It's, I thought it's a duck. It looks like a duck. Dictured species. <laughs> okay, it's not. Okay, okay. Hey, disguised as a bird. And then, you know, this four by four took part of the crowd and, you know, the music just helps. I mean, music shakes every cell in our bodies and we can either dance to it or fight to it or best case scenario, dance and fight at the same time. Wow. Next question. Uh, Jenny is off. 
are there any resources that are slash were useful for organizing movements like this or finding one in one's local area, which I guess is a lead, a, a second sort of part to, to Jenny's first question about like, how do you find this? So what are the, what are the resources that you would say were useful for use when you were sort of starting the ZAD, like starting the, the, the community around the ZAD, which led to it? So the thing is that we joined, I mean, I think it's really important to reiterate that is that, so we joined the ZAD when they had already um, started anyway. And the ZAD yep. came uh, like on the very fertile ground of a movement that had been going on for a long time uh, against the airport in a region that is, you know, like lands of resistance anyway. Uh, like, you know, it's Brittany is the only region in France that doesn't have a, a nuclear um, power station because all the nuclear power stations projects were defeated uh, through popular struggle. So I have to go there. Sorry, I have to. I have to come visit. Okay, sorry. Go on. That's, Come and play a set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd love um, that. But resources, I think it's difficult for me to actually point to a set of resources. I think that rather than resources, I think that for the ZAD, it was this very strong sense of um, a life history of the, of the struggle that um, it was descending from. And also a genuine interest in international uh struggles so you know that when when the zad started um it was tree houses they were built with techniques inspired from the anti-road uh movements and they've always been loads of links with um with various struggles in france and and beyond so Intergeneration, uh, I think that also this movement is very intergenerational and and that is, that's a genuine gift instead to have people that have been involved in social movements for the last 50 years and that are still, that are still coming, it's like we still have, you know, like people in their 70s who come to our um, assembly, that's, I think that it, this is, in a way, the live resources that were incredibly useful. And otherwise, I would always, always mention the Zapatistas because when in doubt, go back to the Zapatistas. And the Zapatistas yeah. are just fantastic. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, next question: Shafik Mog asks, "Have there been any internal disagreements?" between the groups or individuals within the, within the collective and how were these dealt with? Whoa. Massively. How, how many hours do you want? Um... <laughs> <laughs> of course, because the thing is that, like, it's really important to not fall into the kind of, you know, pure propagandist discourse around composition is that what composition or attempts to composition bring is also shed loads of really, really strong sometimes acute dark disagreements and fights it's like because 
because you actually do come from very different perspectives and you don't necessarily have the same vision as to uh, where you want to go or how to get there. So it takes um, a lot of disagreements and a lot of uh, crazy arguments. Um, how they were resolved, it depended on what they were, um, between whom uh there were um there's been quite a lot of uh attempts to um organize uh mediation uh groups and uh and to also like for the last few years quite a few of us have been really getting interested in transformative justice and and how that um, works uh, because because that's also the um, the richness and the difficulty of trying to not delegate the difficult issues because like that's also what we are educated in in doing is that when there is a problem, you delegate, you delegate to the cops, you delegate to, you know, the hospitals, to the psychiatric institution, to the social workers. It's like there is an entire, you know, infrastructure of, uh, of people who are going to um, take that over. Um, and then the only thing you have to do is to stand by and criticize them. But that's just how you end up disposing of all your comrades if you just, if you hand them over to those institutions. Yeah, right. And so when you try to have a rule to not call the cops and not call any of these institutions, then you are sometimes also faced with uh, situations where you feel very powerless too. And some of the most difficult situations are those linked to mental health issues. These are very, very difficult situations sometimes to take on board collectively because they require a lot of care and a lot of and long time long term care it's like it's not just having a good chat with a friend and then they're okay it's, it's actually being ready to um to devote a lot of your of your time but so these are sorry these are the difficult situations but what we've also realized is that there are loads of people in a community like ours there are loads of people whose work it is it is not um officially acknowledged as such but there are loads of people who spend a lot of time talking with different groups and different people and playing the roles of bridges and taking the time to actually have coffees and have you know chats with people and and these roles are very undervalued and they are so important to, to mediate um, conflicts before they become conflicts or, or find ways or actually to actually have the intelligence of knowing what to do or whom to go to when conflicts um, erupt. But also, I mean... The sad truth is that it's so much easier when you have a, a single enemy. And when the enemy was the airport, what we used to say, the airport and its world, 
But when the, there was a struggle against the airport, you could have all this conflict, conflict, but in the end, you you held together because there was a common enemy. And sadly, that's it's 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 really true that it does help you navigate a lot of conflict and stay together despite despite a lot of difference sometimes. Mm. That's a really interesting insight. I really appreciate you uh, answering that as succinctly as you could. Uh, We're also very into transformative justice on Red Planet. We're yes, discussing it soon. Absolutely. Um, but for now, we're running out of time on the show, so we need to plow on with questions. Um, Next one is from Schnornat, our lovely Nat. Um, have the people at Zad taken anything from the struggles of travellers at Dale Farm against state eviction or any other traveller experiences? Are there any links there as travellers are very much fighting the same forces for similar freedoms? Well, I mean, not directly, although we had lots of comrades when we were living in uh, the UK that were involved in the Dale Farm uh, evictions and so on. Uh, uh, and, and I was. And you were. Mm-hmm. I forgot. I entirely forgot. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. No, but I, I, I think that um, I can't trace direct links. It's like they are learnings always. Um, but I would say that direct links are are difficult to to draw and in france is a very different situation mm-hmm. with travelers i mean the legal situation is very very different uh, and even the cultural situation is different although we're quite proud that the um so what led us to be able to leave london uh, and leave our jobs and come to to here was we did a 11 month journey uh, around europe visiting what we called you what was called in a project was called Path Through Utopias. So it was a book and a film in the end. And we visited 11 self-managed autonomous spaces in Europe, ranging from factories where the workers had taken back control of their factories and gone back into production in Serbia, to free free love communities, uh, to anarchist schools, to occupied farms and self-managed farms and everything. And we went in a van uh, and in the film, which is a kind of fake documentary, which we can, which is if you look in Vimeo and put pass through utopias, you'll find it in Vimeo. Um, it, the van that we go around becomes this kind of time machine, and the fake documentary takes us into a kind of post-revolutionary world where it's normal to live like this. And the van, the real van, got used in a barricade at Dale Farm, and its last life was burning on a barricade near Dale Farm. <laughs> so we were quite wow. <laughs> Okay, asked and answered. Yes, you did have some some ties to Dale Farm. Um, <laughs> so, um, Kerry Magic asks, I love what you were saying about the more esoteric activism like the clowns. How has your more creative tactics helped in the Zad? Has it been hard to convince members to try some of them? Also, how effective have they been, roughly speaking, compared to more traditional methods of defense and activism of the land? Wow, interesting question. Yeah, I mean, I mean yeah, sometimes it has been a bit difficult to convince people to use although i wouldn't say that we have a set of tactics because it's much more what we try to do is so much more a kind of approach with the people that are there to be um to try to reinvent the codes and i think that that's uh and we try to implement that in training so for instance we in 2016, we ran um, eight weekend uh, trainings uh, that we made very, very public called Ready to Defend the Zad, uh, where about a thousand people uh, came through 
um and and that was that was um to show the to show the ropes of you know direct action basics and also for people to discover and and get more familiar with the landscape um here um i think that also one of the big differences between what we had been doing for a long time in britain and what you can do here is the police that's that because uh the french policing methods and the british uh, policing methods are almost um opposite they have the same objective which is to destroy social movements but they go about it in very different ways and the british way is you know um intelligence and informants and uh intimidation and and criminalization criminalization through media uh french police is brute force so there's also a lot of you know um direct action techniques uh, that you can't use in france because they will actually hurt you um and and they will kill you so it's that that creates that it means that you know some of the some of the direct action techniques that we are very familiar with in britain are not very easily uh, transferable but building a lighthouse where they wanted to put a control tower you know came out of the the labs type of imagination mm-hmm. and now what a lot of the work we're doing is with a group called the cellule d'action rituel which is the action ritual cell and we actually are developing a whole series of kind of rituals uh to bring the community together and to heal the community uh based on the eight sabbats of the celtic wheel but also on the day of the 17th of january which is the day the airport was abandoned and we we try and create a new kind of aesthetic of rituals which are uh between the punk and the hippie gland and that we call kind of kitsch animism so sequins mixed with uh, maypoles mixed with you know giant newt puppets uh mixed with velvet hearts with yeah uh lots of punk, LEDs, loads LEDs, of LEDs punk songs about animism instead of saying I'm singing I am an anarchist replacing the I am an anarchist rewriting it in French to be I am an animist rather than I am an anarchist and doing kind of karaoke songs so yeah developing a whole new aesthetic of rituals to bring an animist spirit into revolutionary practices uh, so animism being this idea that everything is alive and everything is a subject uh and also to create rituals that create links but you know that are a glue uh for for people and uh to, to to remember that actually what is sacred is what we will fight for uh not what we kneel down to as as either quoted starhawk again uh, and i'm doing it for the second time dope that rocks uh the final question that we have is from chaos merlin and they ask how much do you think the strong regional identity of Brittany helped? And do you think it could help in establishing movements in other countries or assimilated areas? The Celtic spirit is strong, Merlin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, Bretons don't take any shit. Um, there's definitely a... And it's interesting, one of our comrades here um, is a naturalist. So there was a big struggle. Uh, one element of the struggle of the movement here was... Uh, naturalists uh, basically doing their own inventory of the species that were threatened by the airport. Um, and he's Breton. And he said, you know, uh, so officially, where we are, this the village here, uh, not for them, Dillon, 
is not officially in Brittany. It was for many, many hundreds of years, but the, the French state colonized this bit. And so Nantes, the airport was the local airport for Nantes. So we're 20 minutes away from Nantes. Nantes used to be the capital of Brittany. And then the French state basically took back that land. So Brittany's just the end bit of the peninsula. But a lot of Bretons say this is actually still Brittany and it should still be Brittany. And, and our friend Jean-Marie, who's Breton, said, you know, the reason I know that this is still Brittany is because despite the kind of Catholic uh, taking over of the pagan Breton spirit and the French state, there's still a kind of pagan belief that the land is sacred and that you fight for your life for that land. And I think that's 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 very true of of of, of you know British, Welsh, Scottish, Irish um, cultures in a way. Uh, and yet we have to be very clear that you know this that 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 those that that desire that closeness to the land the Celt, you know a lot of that celtic mythology stuff is also taken by the right and we must be very very careful that you know this remains a left uh, thing and not a, a right thing but um yeah i think it did help fantastic well we got through all of the questions there were a um, lot of them but yeah i loved your answers they're really good i think you've been prepped already that on red planet our audience are kind of a bunch of swats and nerds and they like being given homework to do um do you have any ideas for things people who enjoyed seeing you here and uh, wanted to go away and do something i would like people to think about what they can do where they are to build a culture of resistance like be part of that culture of resistance is like to ask themselves if they're, if they're not already involved in social movements you know, to think about what is it that i have to offer and that can be you know bringing a meal at some point somewhere it can be you know opening my garage to you know some squatters that are going to be evicted whatever i said if you have legal skills medic skills it's like what are your skills what is your passion and what is it that you would like to offer and and if you already are involved in social movements is that how can you actually help build that culture of resistance with with openness and, and generosity. And often people say, well, what can I do? And and in a sense, that sometimes, in a way, choose the thing that also, and this comes back to what DJ Mule said on the top of the mountain, you know, do something that makes you feel alive. Don't do something that you think is necessary, the right thing to do, because often we're pushed by a kind of ethical abstraction of like, you know, mm, right now, well, it's really this crisis and this is what I should do. You know, actually do something where actually you feel passionately engaged and it makes you feel alive. And if it makes you feel alive, it's way more likely it's that you'll be doing it in 10 years time rather than having an activist burnout and go back to, you know, uh, three years later, two years later. So, you know, that I think is is super important. Um, Maybe it's not, we haven't got the time to talk about situated politics. I mean, we've been speaking for an hour and a half about situated politics. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i was thinking that um but i i genuinely think that that is a beautiful answer from from the both of you because yeah it, and and it's been a beautiful um couple of hours just you know uh, talking about this and hearing you know uh that you know you, you are sort of doing the uh idealized anarcho-communist dream right of, of occupying space and living there in the way that we're supposed to live as humans and i think that's such a beautiful uh wonderful uh just thing that is happening and that you're part of and i'm, I'm very very 
support. I'm, I'm here to support you in any way that I can, uh, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I want, I want you to be able to do this for as long as possible. Um, is there anything that we can do on Red Planet that can help from afar? Is there a place where we could donate or is there anything like that? Like, do we send you like shoe boxes with stuff in? I don't know. What's, what's the... <laughs> I would say keep doing what you're doing. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> it's, like, it's, it's great. And come visit. Come yeah. get inspiration. And uh, and yeah, I'm I'm and, so down for that. Honestly, yeah. someone in the chat said Red Planet Field Trip when, and we've we've kind of been talking about something similar with a, a more local um, camp anyway. So I'm down. We should I'm do it. We should just come down. hang out at the Zad. Yeah, 100%. Nice. Amazing. Uh, yes. Well, um, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Um, absolutely down to get you on again. And uh, we'll 100% be in touch. And uh, thank you so much for thank chatting you. to us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Red Planet. If you enjoyed the show, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell all your comrades about it. Find more on the show, including where to watch live at redplanetshow.com. Follow us on Twitter and TikTok at red underscore planet underscore TV. And there's even more on our Patreon, patreon.com slash red underscore planet. Our music is by Jasper Byrne. Red Planet is produced by Comrade Zimmerman in association with Mercenary Creative. See you next week. <laughs>